Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses COVID-19 Support Podcast, Episode 3. Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses COVID-19 Support Podcast. I'm your host, nurse journalist, Jamie Davis. Our goal is to discuss important nursing practices during the COVID-19 pandemic and offer tips for nurses on the front line or behind the scenes. We hear you, we're with you, and we support you. Thanks for joining us, whether you're listening in the car, at the house, doing everyday chores, or maybe just taking a quick break. In this podcast series, we will do our best to provide you with the most current information from our incredible community of nurses. However, you should always check with the nursing practice standards for the state in which you're licensed and working, as well as with the organization or healthcare facility where you work. Today, we'll be talking to nursing ethics leader, Cinda Rushton, about how traumatic stress and complex ethical decisions nurses face can lead to moral distress. Let's listen to Cinda discuss some of the important resources that can help nurses build moral resilience. Cinda, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast today, and it's great to have you on the program. Would you take a few moments and introduce yourself to our audience? I'm Cinda Rushton. I am the Bunting Professor of Clinical Ethics at the Johns Hopkins University Berman Institute of Bioethics and School of Nursing. And I'm also uh, the co-chair of the Hospital Ethics Committee for um, many decades now and do a lot of work with frontline clinicians and patients and families around the ethical issues that come up every day in our work. And let's, let's jump off of that right away. Uh, as a clinical ethicist, tell us a little bit about the ethical problems you're seeing right now as this pandemic unfolds. Well, it's a very interesting time because I think what this pandemic has done is it has really illuminated the kinds of ethical questions that people are struggling with every single day. And it ranges from the kinds of questions about resource allocation at all levels, things like PPE, beds, ventilators, ECMO, medicines, blood, you name it. Um, we're having to look at that question differently now. And it, it's, I think, a shift because, at least in the U.S., we actually are very privileged to have a lot of the resources that we need every day. Probably the most important limiting factor in the delivery of um, critical care is not the machines, it's the people. And so I think that this pandemic has really shined a light on how important our workforce is. And what I'm hearing from a lot of my colleagues is a lot of angst around how do I balance my obligations to my patients, to my family, to my friends, and to myself. And it has really raised questions uh, about how we can think about weighing those uh, competing obligations. All of us in healthcare nurses in particular, have always known that there are risks associated with our work. 
But what's different is that we've also had the assumption that the things that would keep us safe are available. And this pandemic has made really clear that we did not have the kinds of protective equipment for many, many frontline nurses and other clinicians that were needed. And that has intensified this sense of distress that people feel. Um, should I come to work? Should I, uh, what should I do in terms of my family? Should I, um, you know, live in a different living arrangement at a time when we really need a lot of support from the people that we love and who love us? So um, there's those kinds of questions. And I think another kind of question that many frontline nurses are struggling with is as we've moved from this sort of um, preparation for the crisis, uh, contingency planning, there've been a lot of changes in our practice standards and, and in our practice patterns. And we're in a situation where many clinicians are being redeployed. And so it raises questions about, you know, can we provide safe quality care in these kinds of situations where the way we've thought about providing care in the past may not even be possible right now. And so um, the questions of, am I causing more harm than good to the people that I'm called to serve? I had a conversation just yesterday with a group of um, cardiovascular surgical ICU nurses who were talking about as experienced nurses, they were experiencing a lot of distress because they were orienting so many new people. And the sense of responsibility that they felt for the patient care and that led them to feel almost hypervigilant that they were constantly um, scanning for potential harms to their patients. So I, I think you add all of those things together with just the stress of a pandemic, and it's it's a you know has all the ingredients that really leave us feeling depleted, worried, and often conflicted. And let's expand upon that a little bit because we need a working definition for moral distress, something that we can use moving forward in this interview. How would you define that? Well, there's a lot of definitions of moral distress. I think one of the, one of the easiest ones is, you know, when one recognizes what we think we ought to do, but because of either internal or external constraints, we're not able to do the right thing. And, and I think a lot of times distress comes up when there's a gap between what we think we ought to be doing and what we're actually doing. And in the midst of a pandemic, I think there are so many situations where, you know, in our minds, we're thinking, if this were a normal situation, I would be doing one thing. And now I'm being asked to do something that feels very different. How do nurses recognize moral distress when compared to the other types of stresses that they're involved uh, with facing day in and day out? I mean, we have a lot of people in the hospital setting that are facing uh, the type of traumatic stresses that previously might only have been seen by first responders in the field. And uh, so how do they recognize the differences and, and recognize moral distress for what it is? When I think about moral distress as compared to distress psychological, spiritual, or other kinds of distress. I think 
some of the defining features are when we are starting to ask ourselves questions of, you know, is this the right thing to do? Um, where our conscience is often involved and we feel that sense of conflict about um, the options that are in front of us. And the sense of questioning, am I a good person in the midst of this? You know, so for me, I find myself often going back to the question of, um, can I see myself as a good nurse if I choose one path or the other? And I think embedded is that in that are these questions about um, how can I how can I really act with integrity in the midst of these constraints that are largely out of my control, and how do I confront those constraints in a way that reflects who I really am, what my values are, and what I stand for in my life and work. Now, you started a program called MEPRA to help nurses with moral distress by building moral resilience. Uh, I'd like you to maybe define what moral resilience is and then talk a little bit about why you chose this particular approach. So the concept of moral resilience is, a, is an evolving one, and it's a concept that I've been particularly interested in the last five or six years in response to the fact that there is a lot of moral distress. And the question is, is what else is possible? And where might we be able to create solutions and actually build the kind of responses that leave us feeling whole? So moral resilience uh, from our point of view is the ability of an individual to preserve or restore their integrity in response to some kind of moral adversity. Moral resilience is not about making an appraisal about whether you're moral or whether you're resilient or not. It's actually an invitation to be able to um, see things as they are, which means um, not, not necessarily agreeing with or endorsing them, but actually having a realistic appraisal of what the situation is. And that doesn't include being complacent or sort of putting a positive spin on a really hard situation, but really acknowledging that I have to make a hard decision. And the ability to recognize that there is a tension and that there are options gives us a chance to choose. How do I want to demonstrate my integrity in this moment? And so the way I like to think about moral resilience is um, a practice that is done in um, Japan called kintsuji. And it's a practice where when a piece of pottery is broken, often our inclination is to take those pieces of pottery and to just throw them away. But in Japan, they use this process of kintsuji, which involves using cement and golden paint to take the pieces of the broken pottery and put them together in a new way, not to overlook or, dis uh, or discard the broken parts, but to actually honor those broken parts and to see that we can put ourselves into a um, new vessel that we can honor, that, that um, incorporates those broken parts and allows us to, to move forward. 
So it's, for me, it is a, a, a direction, a skill set that we can develop um, to strengthen what's already there. And I think that's an important part. Um, sometimes people hear the word resilience and they feel like, oh, I'm being judged as somehow deficient. That's not the intention of this concept at all. It's rather to honor what's already there and to say that there are things that we can do that strengthen our integrity, that strengthen our ability to face whatever is in front of us without so much harm to ourselves or to others. With your work with this program, what do you think are the most effective ways to mitigate moral distress? You know, we've talked about resilience, but how do we mitigate the challenges ahead of time? How do we prepare for that? So when we think about responding to a morally distressing or ethically challenging situation, there are many ways we can respond. One possibility is that we use the awareness that we're feeling something is not right, usually it starts in our bodies, a kind of tension somewhere, to be able to use it as a signal to pause. And so the first thing is to really pause to inquire, why is this a problem for me? What important values are at stake that I need to take account of? Where is the tension between my competing obligations coming from? Is it because I feel like I am balancing the benefits of harm and burden and benefit? Is it because I feel I have uh, obligations to patients, to their families, to my colleagues, and even to myself right now in the midst of this COVID crisis? Being able to actually pause and to touch into what seems to be at stake. Where is my integrity being challenged in one way or another? In that pausing, it's also an opportunity to connect to why we're doing this work in the first place. So to connect to our sense of purpose and meaning and to use that as fuel for what we intend to bring about. What is it that we're hoping will happen as a result of our action? And to use that as a resource and a guide as we proceed in the second step, which is reflecting. Reflecting gives us a space as well to calm our nervous system so that we can actually see things clearly, where we're not so dysregulated or distracted that we're missing important points that are present in the current situation. And with that, a potential for various options that we might consider as we think about um, what's the right thing to do in this important space that we're in. Reorienting ourselves in the midst of that reflection to our primary obligations, thinking about what our ANA Code of Ethics says about what priorities we ought to give in providing patient care or in resolving ethical conflicts can be another place to reflect and to reconnect. Um, and to really explore where the distress is affecting us. It may be in our bodies. It may be that we are feeling anxious or fearful or helpless or angry or sad. All of those are normal feelings. But 
being able to pause to actually name what the source is, to reflect on our ethical obligations, and then to respond uh, rather than reacting. And responding means we need to pause as well to answer the question, what will really serve now in this circumstance, given the constraints, given the resources that are available, and how can I respond in a way that reflects my values as a person, as a professional, and how it can reflect the nurse I really am. So that gives us a, a starting point and a place for us to then discern, is action needed or is inaction the appropriate response? Who else might be able to help me in being able to determine what the right path is? What resources do I have within myself, within my team, within my organization, or even beyond that, that can help me to make sure that I'm using good facts and that I am using a process of ethical analysis that really illuminates all the various dimensions of these very complex questions. And once we've had a chance to respond, then the last piece is to review and to step back and to be able to ask ourselves, what happened? How did it turn out? What part of that am I responsible for? And what part of that am I not responsible for? And can I also at the same time acknowledge my effort, regardless of the outcome, to exercise my integrity and my moral agency in the midst of really challenging situations? It's often the case in these really challenging situations that we can feel a sense of inadequacy. Question of, did I really fulfill my ethical obligations? Did I do all I could? And on the one hand, that's a normal kind of question. But on the other hand, it can tap into a pattern that is very common among us. And that is that we are constantly expecting ourselves to be able to perform, to be able to produce outcomes that are largely beyond our control. And so because that's particularly highlighted in the midst of a pandemic, much of what's happening is actually beyond our control. But to be able to also acknowledge when I have taken action and I have discerned the right path, I have evaluated the various options, and I have done that from a place of integrity. I have fulfilled my obligations, even though the outcome may not be the one that I would choose or would hope would happen. It doesn't erase the very real contribution that has been made. So we also have to have space to reflect on how we can leverage our moral agency, our courage, our compassion in a way that helps others to be able to do the same for themselves. So what that might mean is at the end of these challenging situations and as we are going through them, to intentionally create times to pause and to take notice in a very uh, intentional way 
of all the efforts that people are putting forth physically, emotionally, mentally, and ethically. You recently created an amazing video with the Berman Institute in which you walk the viewer through a day in the life of an ICU nurse during COVID-19. Um, it, it's a super powerful video. Do you think this is giving an accurate view of what the nurses are facing and how does a nurse who walks through that day in real life really deal with the day-to-day, the -day, not just one day, but day-to-day -day efforts to deal with the stress they're facing on a regular basis? I think it's not an understatement to say that what critical care nurses are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis is intense. It is uh, challenging at all different levels, personally, relationally, professionally. So I think there's no question that there's a, an incredible burden that many nurses are carrying. And I think that um, many nurses are experiencing a sense of moral residue, the sort of um, leftover sense of um, distress or angst at the end of their shift that can accumulate day after day after day. And I think part of our challenge right now is to, first of all, to acknowledge that that is the case. And then to say, and what else might be true? Because it's very easy, I think, in the midst of a, a pandemic where fear is the primary emotion that people are feeling, uncertainty, confusion, that we tend to focus in on the things that were left undone. And it's really easy for us to forget that in the midst of all of this complexity and chaos, there was a lot of good that was done. And I spend time trying to help my colleagues to remember at the end of their day Yes, there were things that were left undone, but can we pause and notice what good was done? And to, to know that the fact that they showed up is huge. The fact they listened, that they brought their competence to the moment makes a difference in how that patient experienced their day, their life, and that they accompanied people as they always have through the hard parts, recovering and also at the end of life. And so we've developed a couple of um, very simple practices to help nurses make the transition from their workplace to home. And one of those is um, involving what we called a personal protective strategy that is a team huddle at the end of the shift. And this is a process that it allows us to track our own physical experience because a lot of times we're thinking about things, but our bodies are a, a well of information about how we really are. The process is to have everybody come together in a huddle and for each person to have a chance to talk about what was hard and what also went well. 
The point of this is to acknowledge both, but to intentionally spend more time in the space of how does it feel when we talk about the good thing? What does that look like in our bodies? How can we connect to that? And have a way of acknowledging in each other, but also noticing what it's like for me to say that, but what it's like for me to listen to my colleagues to say what went well for them. And to use that as part of the transition to home so that we're not leaving our work with all of the weight of the responsibility and of the crisis with us. And then there are other practices, you know, to how do we begin to titrate our amount of time that we spend with the hard things? Can we, during the day when things are feeling really overwhelming, can we bring our attention to something that's pleasurable? Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a pet, maybe it's a place. But the point is, is that we can't stay in the hard place all the time. We have to find ways to give ourselves even momentary relief from that so that we can, um, you know, preserve our energy and our effort in ways that will really make a difference. One of the things that's lifted me up so much throughout this whole pandemic has been seeing the ways that nurses have innovated and found ways to be caring in the midst of a place where it was hard to care. Um, the ways that they've connected families with dying members of their family and found ways to do things using things that we never would have thought of trying before. When it comes to the facilities, you mentioned how the teams work together. And I'm curious what other ways the hospitals and organizations out there can help support moral resilience in their staff. That's a great question because uh, the truth of the matter is this is not uh, a responsibility of just the individual. Yes, it's true that we are responsible for our own well-being and our organizations are also responsible for creating the conditions for our well-being to thrive. So I think there are a number of ways that organizations can support uh, frontline nurses to be morally resilient. Uh, one of those is to actually invest in support systems. And that can be peer-to-peer -peer support. It can be um, having uh, forums. We are currently implementing um, moral resilience rounds in a virtual format um, where we're offering um, a space for people to come together to talk about these issues in community. In some ways, it's easier for us to come together on a Zoom call than it is for us to actually meet in person. So we're finding that to be an opportunity to acknowledge that it is hard and that there is a lot that people are carrying and that we need to create a sense of community and solidarity among our staff that um, we're investing in a space and a time dedicated to hear from them. Um, it's not a session that's about giving information. It's a really a session for everyone to come together and to bear witness to each other's experience, to offer support and caring, and um, 
resources that might help a person manage with a little more ease. Also, I think that organizations have an opportunity right now to take seriously the recommendations of the National Academy's report uh, about burnout and to look specifically at the systemic contributions to burnout. And a lot of those uh, contributions have to do with job demands and job resources. And the job demands category right now is very intensified in the midst of the pandemic. So what are some of the ways that we can begin to step back from the crisis and really look at what needs to happen to be able to support frontline staff to do their jobs well? Hopefully one of those lessons is we have to have the kinds of resources that allow them to feel safe in their jobs. That's not an option going forward. Uh, Secondly, we need to be able to look carefully at the patterns in our organizations that are causing them this distress. You mentioned uh, the ingenuity of nurses. One of the places where nurses are really struggling right now is the changes in uh, relationships with their patients and their families. And that has often been a source of great meaning for nurses. And so I think that's an area where we've got to pay some attention to how do we restore that sense of meaning and connection with our patients um, so that we're not asking nurses to just do tasks, but we're actually honoring what it means to be a good nurse, which includes all of those things. Those are the kinds of things I think are really important. Also, having um, a whole menu or um, array of support mechanisms because it's never a one-size-fits-all. People need different things at different times, and we need to think about what that menu of options ought to look like. Some people will benefit from one-on-one -on -one, uh, interventions, others group, and others may need something else. Um, but I think to me, this is a really important time to put the priority on the well-being of our healthcare workforce because I really don't believe our healthcare system can function safely and effectively without a healthy frontline workforce. You know, I've heard this pandemic called more of a marathon than a sprint. You know, we all, a lot of the people in the public want this to be over and, and see the end of the light at the end of the tunnel. But those of us in, in healthcare see it differently. But we are seem, seemingly in an area maybe of a trough right now between some different waves. What can we do moving forward to prepare for another wave? And we've learned some lessons right now from what's happened in recent months. What are we going to do that, that can help prepare us and be more resilient come the fall? I do think it is a marathon. I want to answer that question in two ways. One is, I think one of the things we have to acknowledge is that we are in a process of change. And if you look at Bridges' model of how things were, we're not going back to how things were. Now we're in the in the phase of trying to figure out, well, how are things right now so that we can make the transition to how we want them to be in the future. 
And so I think it's a really good time for us to pause and to take stock of what did we learn? Preparation is necessary. We made choices about things like redeployment and training and staffing in the midst of the crisis that we need to stop now and ask, did it work? What else is possible? How do we actually design differently to accommodate for the possibility of another surge? So instead of waiting until there's a crisis, now is the time for us to really plan what will our staffing look like? What will our resource, you know, of all type, what will they look like? One of the things I've been working with with a group of about 20 interprofessional colleagues is our resource allocation plan. And we have been working now uh, almost daily for eight weeks, trying to think about how we can put in place protocols for the allocation of scarce resources when we reach that crisis point of view. So that we can, over the summer, we're gonna actually be trying to operationalize those plans and to see how they work in the midst of maybe a lull um, before we might have to use them in, in real life. So I think the more that we can do that kind of planning, the better off we'll be. And it'll also be reassuring to people that we have a plan, uh, rather than this idea of we're just making this up as we go along. We do have the opportunity now to stop and pause. In terms of these ethical issues, I think one opportunity is to actually acknowledge what people have experienced so far and to give them an opportunity to give voice to those concerns, to have a, an opportunity to explore them and what consequences have resulted from them and to think about how we can intensify the skills and tools that they may need to be able to confront those issues going forward. So learning at every level is really important right now um, so that we can be better prepared for the kinds of issues that we will inevitably face. Someday this marathon will be over. Someday there will be a finish line. What is that silver lining? What is that thing that we're going to find at the other end of the tunnel um, that's going to say we've, we've made a change for the better? We've made a brighter, brighter future for nursing and for healthcare and for our patients uh, that we've learned from this process. What can we do to be better prepared for moral resilience and to deal with moral distress? So I am hopeful, actually. Um, hopeful meaning recognizing the truth of the situation we're in, but also being aware of what else might emerge. And I think what I've seen is the dissolution of some of the old structures that have kept us stuck in old patterns and old narratives that we have told repeatedly for decades about ourselves as nurses and about our teams and about our work. So I think that gives us a foundation to be able to say, we need to stand 
proud and we need to stand firm on our foundation uh, and ethical foundation of nursing practice. So the silver lining is that this pandemic has made very clear the fissures in our healthcare system. It has made very evident the places in our healthcare systems that are not serving the welfare of our frontline clinicians. And I think that it is a huge opportunity to step forward with solutions and to say, this is what is needed now. And in the midst of chaos, I'm a fan of let's just do it. Waiting for everyone to be ready for the changes that are needed is a missed opportunity. I think we want to charge forward with our ingenuity, with our incredible knowledge and wisdom, and say, here are the solutions that we need to adopt, and we're not apologizing. Linda, it's been great chatting with you. I think there's a lot of great information in, in what we've discussed that are going to help a lot of our nurses in our community. And I just want to thank you again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on and share your thoughts with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I feel like we're in a really important shift in our profession that if we can stand together in solidarity in our commitment to our patients as the grounding of everything that we do, that the solutions that we will create will create a, a more compassionate, just, and caring healthcare environment. So I'm looking forward to what we will create together. I am so proud to be part of this community. That will conclude today's episode of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses COVID-19 Support Podcast. You can stay up to date with us at our website, aacn.org. And for more great updates, connect with AACN through Instagram at Exceptional Nurses. You'll definitely want to come back for our next episode when we will have bedside nurse Nikki Raymond on the show to discuss how she and colleagues managed patient care amidst the COVID crisis on a daily basis. I'm nurse journalist Jamie Davis, thanking you for taking the time to join us in the midst of your busy day. We hear you, we're with you, and we support you.